Hello and welcome back to the Plutarch Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Cox from Grammaticus.co. And today in this halfway through the month episode, we'll be looking at Marcellus and Pelopidas compared. So what I've been doing in these episodes is reading the entire comparison and then highlighting some of my thoughts so that we can go back through the lives and apply some of the lessons to ourselves in our own circumstances and present day. Thanks so much for the download and the reviews. If you're giving them, do tell your friends and your friends' friends about Plutarch because virtue just makes your life better. And Plutarch helps you understand virtue better. Logically, you should be telling everyone you know to read Plutarch and perhaps to listen to the Plutarch podcast. But without further ado, let's dive right in to the man's very words as they were written 1900 years ago. This is what I have thought worthy of record in what historians say about Marcellus and Pelopidas. In their natures and dispositions, they were almost exactly alike, since both were valiant, laborious, passionate, and magnanimous. And there would seem to have been this difference only between them, that Marcellus committed slaughter in many cities which he reduced, while Epaminondas and Pelopidas never put anyone to death after their victories. Nor did they sell cities into slavery. And we are told that, had they been present, the Thebans would not have treated the Orchomenians as they did. As for their achievements, those of Marcellus against the Gauls were great and astonishing, since he routed such a multitude of horse and foot with the few horsemen in his following, an action not easily found recorded of any other general, and slew the enemy's chieftain. Whereas in this regard, Pelopidas failed for he set out to do the same thing, but suffered what he meant to inflict and was slain first by the tyrant. However, with these exploits of Marcellus, one may compare the battles of Leuctra and Tegira, greatest and most illustrious of actions. And we have no exploit of Marcellus accomplished by stealth and ambuscade, which we can compare with what Pelopidas did in coming back from exile and slaying the tyrants in Thebes, Nay, that seems to rank far higher than any other achievement of secrecy and cunning. Hannibal was, it is true, a most formidable enemy for the Romans, but so assuredly were the Lacedaemonians in the time of Pelopidas for the Thebans, and that they were defeated by Pelopidas at Tegira and Leuctra is an established fact, whereas Hannibal, according to Polybius, was not even once defeated by Marcellus, but continued to be invincible until Scipio came. However, I believe with Livy, Caesar, Nepos, and among the Greek writers, King Juba, that sundry defeats and routs were inflicted by Marcellus upon the troops of Hannibal, although these had no great influence upon the war. Indeed, the Carthaginian would seem to have practiced some ruse in these engagements. But that which reasonably and fittingly called for admiration was the fact that the Romans, after the rout of so many armies, the slaughter of so many generals, and the utter confusion of the whole empire, still had the courage to face their foes. 
For there was one man who filled his army again with ardor and ambition to contend with the enemy, instead of the great fear and consternation which had long oppressed them, inspiring and encouraging them not only to yield the victory reluctantly, but also to dispute it with all eagerness. And this man was Marcellus. For when their calamities had accustomed them to be satisfied whenever they escaped Hannibal by flight, he taught them to be ashamed to survive defeat, to be chagrined if they came within a little of yielding, and to be distressed if they did not win the day. Since then, Pelopidas was never defeated in a battle where he was in command, and Marcellus won more victories than any Roman of his day, it would seem perhaps that the multitude of his successes made the difficulty of conquering the one equal to the invincibility of the other. Marcellus, it is true, took Syracuse, while Pelopidas failed to take Sparta. But I think that to have reached Sparta and to have been the first of men to cross the Eurotas River in war was a greater achievement than the conquest of Sicily. Unless, indeed, it should be said that this exploit belongs rather to Epaminondas than to Pelopidas, as well as the victory at Leuctra, while Marcellus shared with no one the glory of his achievements. For he took Syracuse all alone, and routed the Gauls without a colleague. And when no one would undertake the struggle against Hannibal, and all declined it, he took the field against him changed the aspect of the war, and was the first leader to show daring. I cannot indeed applaud the death of either of them. Nay, I am distressed and indignant at their unreasonableness in the final disaster. And I admire Hannibal, because in battles so numerous that one would weary of counting them, he was not even wounded. I'm delighted too with Chrysantes in the Syropidea, who, though his blade was lifted on high and he was about to smite an enemy, when the trumpet sounded a retreat, he let his man go and retired with all gentleness and decorum. Pelopidas, however, was somewhat excusable because, excited as he always was by an opportunity for battle, he was now carried away by a generous anger to seek revenge. For the best thing is that a general should be victorious and keep his life, but if he must die, he should end his life with valor, as Euripides tells us. For then he does not suffer death, but rather achieves it. And besides his anger, Pelopidas saw that the consummation of his victory would be the death of the tyrant, and this not altogether unreasonably invited his effort. For it would have been hard to find another deed of prowess so fair and so glorious. But Marcellus, when no great need was pressing, and when he felt none of that ardor which in times of peril unseats the judgment, plunged heedlessly into danger, and died the death not of a general, but of a mere skirmisher or a scout, having cast his five consulates, his three triumphs, and the spoils and trophies which he had taken from kings under the feet of the Iberians and Numidians who had sold their lives to the Carthaginians. And so it came to pass that these very men were loath to accept their own success, when a Roman who excelled all others in valor and had the greatest influence and the most splendid fame was uselessly sacrificed among the scouts of Fragelae. 
This, however, must not be thought a denunciation of the men, but rather an indignant and outspoken protest on their own behalf against themselves and their valor, to which they uselessly sacrificed their other virtues. In that, they were unsparing of their lives, as if their death affected themselves alone, and not rather also their countries, their friends, and their allies. After his death, Pelopidas received burial from his allies, on whose behalf he fell. Marcellus received burial from his enemies, by whose hands he fell. An enviable and happy lot was the former, it's true, but better and greater than the goodwill which makes grateful men return for favors done is the hatred which admires a valor that was harassing. For in this case, it is worth a loan which receives the honor, whereas in the other, personal interests and needs are often more regarded than excellence. Yeah, that's great. Loving it. So what do we notice? A few things I like to point out is he tells us at the beginning, it's a well-written essay, uh, that he's going to look at what all the historians say. And then about halfway through, when he does that little Hannibal section, he lists by name the sources for his story, which is cool because we still have Polybius. We still have parts of Polybius. We still have parts of of Livy. And I don't think we have any of the Caesar or the King Juba extant. King Juba obviously wrote in Greek. The rest of these wrote in Latin. And we have Cornelius Nepos's Life of Hannibal. I should look further into it, see if Cornelius Nepos also did a life of Marcellus. But he definitely did a life of Hannibal, which is pretty famous, and accents his trickiness. But we get that list right off the top as well. So we have the historians in the topic sentence, but we also have that list of valor. And I like that my translator was pretty consistent and translated valor and valiant always with Andrea. And Plutarch has already made this point, and we've brought it up many times, but it seems to me that the parallel Roman lives are written to bring the Romans a correction as well as an admiration of their past. And this is something that makes Plutarch more than just a, let's call him a materialist conservative, right, who would only just want things to stay the same but be updated to the present time. He recognizes that there were flaws even back then, even though he thinks that most of the virtues were also stronger back then. But one flaw is this Roman tendency to conflate Andrea and Arete. Andrea, manliness, valor, excellence in war, has at its root honor, man, and thus is probably best translated as manliness most of the time. But almost always have to has to do with feats of war. And its exact equivalent in Latin is virtus, which gives us the English word virtue. I think it's way, way back in the life of Cicero that I go through this, but even Cicero himself, who predates Plutarch by about 100 years, did not like the word virtus because it had at its root vir, and it did not imply, or it implied the things that only men can be good at, or warfare, you know, force and the control of force 
So Cicero preferred humanitas, right, or honestum as his word for virtue, which sounds exactly like what they are, humanity or on honesty, as his words that encompassed more of what the Greek implies by arete, virtue, excellence. But he pulls that thread throughout because it's the first virtue that they both that he lists for both Marcellus and Pelopidas. It's the first virtue that they show us throughout their lives and even in their deaths. But it's that virtue being at the top of the list that's what's messed up. We can arrange even our virtues in a disordered way and they can cause our downfall, the lack of a full flourishing human life. Right. Uh, and I think that's something really worth looking out for. Courage is the mean between recklessness and cowardice. It's really easy to argue that they went very close to the edge, if not all the way over the edge of recklessness, because they put bravery not at in the place where it belongs in a rightly ordered soul, which is as the base and foundation serving the higher virtues of justice and prudence. So, and funnily enough, right, they're, they're hardworking, they're philoponos. I think we talked about this with uh, Philippemen, right, was the, it wasn't, it wasn't a humility because it wasn't a, quite a Christian concept of humility, but that willingness to do all the labors. We'll also see this in the life of Caesar, who often doesn't shirk from any of the work that needs to be done when it needs to be done, but that love of toil, you might even say, ponos is a specific type of labor, the labor that makes you sweat, the labor that is difficult. They're also high-spirited, thumoedes, great word, because one of the words for anger in Greek is thumos. And so their high-spiritedness is what puts them on the edge of anger all the time. And then their last virtue is that they are magnanimous, I'm not a huge fan of this translation because it's going to ring bells for you of Aristotle's ethics if you have it, but this is not quite the same word Aristotle uses. He uses megalopsuke for literally great sold, and this is megalophron. This is much more like a magnanimous or noble, generous. It can also, though, be used in a bad sense unlike magnanimous in English, to mean something much more like arrogant. So it's having a great sense of your own fron or frain or phronesis, all of which are related words, having to do with how you think through the means to your ends. So those four virtues are cool. And these are great lives to read nowadays because I actually think that the virtue most of us are lacking in a very comfortable existence that we have is actually bravery. And it's been interesting to watch the cultural shift back towards bravery where people have to try to do hard things. And thankfully, <laughs> some of them are attracted to try to do those hard things. But how are you brave when the temperature for your entire existence is controlled unless you go outside. And even then, you have nicer clothes and materials out of which your clothes are made than anyone has ever had. And so you can continue to keep yourself comfortable. Right? Comfort and efficiency 
seem to be the two highest goods. And so seeking out difficulty, which is what trains our bravery, is really helpful. And then honestly looking for people who've done brave things, who've done hard things, who've done difficult things because they were worth doing. And so I think that's great because it's followed up right by Philoponos. And we might all be willing to be keyboard warriors and be hardworking in that sense. Here I am standing in front of my keyboard. But in what other ways should we be hardworking? And then high-spirited and magnanimous are, are hard because, for a number of reasons, but as Americans, right, we, uh, as Tocqueville so eloquently pointed out, even 150 years ago, we get more and more obsessed with equality and less and less obsessed with liberty. And high-spiritedness and magnanimity often look, well, they look arrogant. They come across as, I'm better than you. And so it's hard for Americans to even see those as virtues. There are still hierarchies that we appreciate, hierarchies that we enjoy. We, we have certain titles that we still give people. PhDs are still called doctors. MDs are still called doctors. But there's a weird insistence on not just equality of dignity, but equality of outcome as America has gotten older and older. I don't know if that's as much worldwide, but it makes high-spiritedness and magnanimity a little more off-putting. And yet, of course, there's always the pendulum that swings in the other direction. If I'd say anybody is high-spirited, it's somebody like Joe Rogan. Um, just try to have him interview you without interrupting you, for example. So we move from the virtues that they had in common, which I think are all worth chewing on, meditating over, to two virtues that they both lacked. And an example that kind of comes in out of left field, if you heard it and noticed it, I'll highlight it here. They both lacked gentleness, praotes, which, again, Aristides, Pericles, we can think of great examples of gentle leaders. We're going to see one soon, Emilius Paulus, in this season. There are examples of gentleness that Plutarch will hold up for us. These guys are not it. There are the they are the opposite. They are running into battle and running over people on their way. And the other one is moderation or decorum, which is interesting because Marcellus was Greek influenced. He wasn't as strong a Greek as some of the others that we'll see later in this season as the Romans conquer the Greeks, but also Greek ideas conquer the Romans. But his humanitas, right, his importation of Greek ideas into Roman life was a big step for fundamentally changing Roman culture, Roman mores, Roman standards. And so though he himself was not gentle and moderate, he perhaps brought in a type of thinking and a literature and a religious influence, a philosophical influence, that encouraged men to greater gentleness and moderation. But here's the example. He pulls an example out of Xenophon and says that a certain soldier named Chrysantes was about to bring his sword down on someone's head when the trumpet calls for the men to fall back. As soon as the trumpet sounds, he moves his sword not a further inch towards 
the enemy that he was assailing, turns his horse around and gallops back in gentleness and moderation. No direct contrast is made. It's just while he's mentioning Hannibal, he mentions Chrysantes. This has to be a contrast, though, that we all notice, <laughs> right? His admiration for Hannibal was that Hannibal had never been wounded, and then his admiration for Chrysantes is that he was able to essentially play the game at his highest level until the whistle blew. And then when the whistle blew, he could be friends again. There it is. That was the Marcellus example, right? Do you know someone who just becomes a different person under competition? Does he ever flip back if he loses to you? Mmm, good question, right? And the last section is really important for us because we have to remember that in how we live, we're also always answering the question, how are we going to die? And Marcellus and Pelopidas both died as they lived, recklessly bold in the face of adversity. But Marcellus's seemed to be to no point, to no purpose, throwing away his life, acting like a scout, someone who had been at the head of the entire Roman Empire, such as it was mostly in the Western Mediterranean world, now falling to mercenaries, mercenaries of the Carthaginians, not even face-to-face -face with his enemy. Whereas Pelopidas was at least taking on a tyrant and face-to-face -face in his rage calling the tyrant out so that he could take him down. So even in, though Pelopidas fails and dies, Marcellus shouldn't have died at all, shouldn't have been in that kind of a situation, took a roll of the dice that was far too reckless. And yet, one was buried by his friends, and the other was buried by his enemies, which is a greater honor because being buried by your friends, they have all kinds of other things that they may, all kinds of other reasons that they may be burying you. Those reasons could be personal interest or need, but when your enemies bury you, they bury you for one reason, respect. Respect for your virtues. And so that's a really good place to end this parallel. Who do you want at your funeral? Do you think any enemies will show? Any people who don't like you? Hmm. What if you don't have any enemies? What does that say about you? Really? Everybody likes you? You can't please everyone all the time. So, maybe think about getting an enemy. Or at least noticing who they are. It's very human for people not to like you. And you're a human. So either do more excellent things and people will naturally stop liking you. Or look around because you already have enemies. But would they come to your funeral? Would they help bury you? There's a weird silence on Marcellus's, on the desecration of Marcellus's bones and ashes. 
I think probably because bringing it up twice would just make it too loud. So he mentions it once in the life and then mentions that, you know, Hannibal tried to give him an honorable burial with the silver urn and all of that. But those same mercenaries who had who had destroyed his life uh, are the ones that ended up, or a similar type, are the ones that ended up taking the silver and scattering the bones. So how you are living is how you are dying because we are living, that is to say dying, every day. And so the virtues that you have now and the virtues that you had 10 years ago are the virtues everyone will remember you for. They will live after you. What do you want those virtues to be? Start practicing them. And continue to look to the past, to what the historians inquired about, to find other virtues, other actions, and other situations worthy of your admiration and imitation. Until then, I'll see you next month, where we will continue to pick up Plutarch's lives and let his lives influence ours. Thank you.